Welcome to the 5x Growth Podcast, where your host, Carl, brings you the best insights and takeaways from the books I read on startups, entrepreneurship, marketing, and sales. Get ready to level up and accelerate your personal and professional growth with every episode. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? Today we're going to continue our book, Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap for Entrepreneurs. We're moving on to chapter 4. It's called False Starts. Heading for a false start, a a failure pattern common to many early stage ventures. A false start occurs when a startup rushes to launch its first product before conducting enough customer research only to find that the opportunities they've identified are rife with problems. By giving short shrift to early and accurate customer feedback, and by neglecting to test their assumptions with MVPs, they simply run out of time to fix all the flaws, thus turning Lean Startup's fail-fast mantra into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Time is, an early, time is an early stage startup's most precious resource and a false start wastes a feedback cycle. After the team should still try to pivot toward a more attractive opportunity. But each pivot consumes time and with it scarce cash. Moreover, it may take more than one pivot to strike gold. In his book, The Lean Startup, Eric Rice defines a startup's runway not in the conventional way, as the number of months remaining before the startup exhausts all of its capital at its current cash burn rate, but rather as the number of pivots the startup can complete before its cash reserves are depleted. With the clock ticking, one wasted cycle uses up precious runway, which means the startup has one less chance to pivot to an attractive opportunity. In March 2011, he saw the writing on the wall. He shut the company down, paid his employees severance, helped all of them get new jobs, and returned 120000 out of the 750000 seed round to his investors. Triangulate's team had completed three big product pivots in two years, but never found a market. In that, they are hardly alone. An analysis of startup postmortems by CB Insights shows that no market need was the most frequently cited cause of failure. When I took a step back to study other early-stage startups that had targeted opportunities that turned out to be weak or non-existent, I learned that many, like Triangulate, had rushed their first product to market before conducting enough customer research. Not surprisingly, their product failed to hit the mark, so they had to head back to the product design drawing board having burned through, the, through scarce cash and wasted 
precious time. Weak founders rarely attract strong teams and smart money. So what went wrong? Lean startup gurus advise founders to launch early and often, putting a real product into the hands of real customers to secure their feedback as fast as possible. Triangulate's team did that, over and over. With each product iteration, they responded to customer feedback quickly and pivoted in a nimble manner. In doing so, they heeded another lean startup mantra, fail fast. But Triangulate's team, like many entrepreneurs, neglected yet another lean startup precept, complete customer discovery, a thorough round of interviews with prospective customers before designing and developing a minimal viable product, MVP. In Nagaraj's postmortem analysis of Triangulate's failure, he acknowledged skipping this crucial early step, step. In retrospect, I should have spent a few months talking to as many customers as possible before we started to code, and I completely ignored a question that many friends were asking me, which revealed a lot about their true needs. And that question was, are there any hot girls or guys on the site? Uh, as a result, the opportunity that Triangulate pursued was riddled with flaws, Looking at the four opportunity elements, only technology and operations was on track. The other three exhibited serious problems. Customer value proposition. Triangulate's team never identified a differentiated superior solution to a strong unmet need. Latecomers who fail to offer a superior solution will almost always face an uphill ba battle especially if they target a market like online dating with strong network effects. Actually, there wasn't any uh, explanation what does Triangulate mean. So Triangulate, it's a company of Nagaraj uh, and basically they tried to do an online dating website and they failed. So yeah. To attract these users, you have to complete, compete in a ma mature industry with behemoths like Match. So Match, it's ma Match.com. It's like Tinder. Who've beat up customer acquisition costs over the past 20 years. They look like tech companies, but they're really huge marketing machines. Match.com spends something like 70% of revenue on ads, which is why everyone knows about it. I, I made a mis the mistake of thinking of Triangulate as a technology company that could succeed with a great product alone. So we've talked about customer value proposition. Now let's talk about marketing. So lagging a critical mass of users and therefore, and therefore unable to harness network effects Wings and DateBuzz found it difficult to attract new users, a catch-22. Nagaraj, the founder of Triangulate, 
also wrongly assumed that word-of-mouth referrals by wingmen would drive viral growth, eliminating the need for big spending on marketing. The plan, build it and they will come, didn't pan out. It turned out Wings acquired 60% of users through ads, only 30% through word of mouth, press coverage, and Facebook's dashboard, and a mere 10% through in-app viral actions. Yeah, so I can so as you can see, the founder of Triangulate, the dating website, he kind of put all his chips on network effects and virality, and then turned out it didn't work basically only 30% of users came through word of mouth and 60% of users came through paid ads and when you compete with big players like tinder match.com you can't really uh, spend as much as they do on advertising on paid advertising okay now let's move on we've talked about customer value proposition we've talked about marketing and now let's talk about profit formula so lacking viral virality and suffering from a subscale network triangulate had to spend more than originally expected on advertising and promotional incentives to acquire users when he launched triangulate nagaraj believed that computer-generated matches based on behavioral data would be superior to those based on self-reported information and that users of online dating sites would be willing to pay a premium for these improved, improved results. By failing to test these assumptions before his team commenced engineering work, he discovered too late that our machine algorithm based on behavior analytics ended up being unimportant to wings and date buzz before launching wings in late 2009 nagaraj did field an online survey asking 150 consumers if they'd prefer matching based on questionnaire responses or objective computer-generated data. The problem was that the survey didn't rise to the level of a true MVP, which puts a fake smile of a real product in consumers' hands to go gauge their demand. Triangulate could have conducted a landing page test by quickly building a website that presented a compelling and authentic-looking marketing pitch for a new dating service, one that leveraged computer-generated behavioral data for matching, and then by inviting consumers to sign up. Nagaraj could have used a similar landing page test to explore demand for the wingman concept, but again, he bypassed an MVP and launched Wings as a fully functional product. Had Nagaraj spoken to prospective customers at the outset or tested a true MVP, his team might have designed Triangulate's first product to conform more closely to market needs and avoided wasting months on software and features that were eventually shelved.
he also might have put more effort into enhancing user profiles through use of the live stream connectors, which did have consumer appeal. Now let's ask ourselves, why are founders prone to false starts? Reflecting on these missteps, Nagaraj admitted that the reason he didn't spend more time talking to consumers about their dating preferences was that he couldn't wait to start building. His bias for action is typical of entrepreneurs who often are champing at at the bit to get started. And engineers like Nagaraj and his teammates love to build. So when you have entrepreneurs who are also engineers, their impulse is often to build and launch their product as fast as they can. Founders without engineering background, including many of the MBAs I advise, fall victim, fall victim to, this, to this mistake too. Non-technical founders tend to be insecure about their inability to build the solutions they envision. Having been having been told repeatedly that having a great product is a do-or-die requirement. Non-technical founders tend to be persuasive and good at networking and frequently can recruit an engineer to fill this gap. However, an engineer's hefty compensation means that the cash flow meter is running faster, so the pressure is on to build and launch a product as soon as possible. As a result, the engineering's often start building before the team has a good understanding of the problem or solution. At the risk of stereotyping, another reason that some technical founders avoid interviewing prospective customers is that many engineers are simply too introverted to push themselves to query strangers. When they do get out and conduct interviews, both engineers and non-technical founders often botch them by posing leading questions. So a leading question might sound like, do you like our idea? This is a very leading question. And then hearing what they want to hear. The worst offenders are so arrogant about the solutions they've come up with, perhaps due to prior industry experience, that they don't see any value at all in customer input. So now let's talk about the juicy stuff. Let's talk about how to avoid false starts. Entrepreneurs can avoid false starts by undertaking a thorough and thoughtful design process before commencing engineering work. Founders with a flawed understanding of lean startup logic too often skip early process steps. They jump straight to MVP testing, which allows them to build a first version of their product. However, MVP testing should be the next to last step of the design process. The full process can be depicted using the double diamond design framework. The left-hand diamond represents the first phase of the process. 
problem definition, and the right-hand diamond represents the second phase, solution development. So we have problem definition and then solution development. During the problem definition phase, you identify an unmet needs and the customer segments for whom those needs are most pressing. The goal is to ensure that you found genuine pain or desire, that is, a problem truly worth solving. Once a real problem is identified, you then enter the solution development phase, which involves exploring different ways to address the problem and selecting the best one. These arrows represent an initial focus on divergent thinking. So divergent thinking generating lots of ideas. Followed by an emphasis on convergence thinking. Convergence thinking is when you're trying to deciding which ideas are the best. For the problem definition phase, divergent thinking means exploring the full range of customer segments you might plausibly serve and for each segment, identifying the full set of unmet needs you could conceivably address. Next, convergence thinking allows you to home in on which customer segments you will target and which needs you will focus on. The same divergence then the same diverge then converge rhythm applies to solutions. Uh, to solution development. So with solution development, you ge generate lots of possible solutions to customers' problems and then select the most promising ones. The process is depicted as a left-to-right linear flow, but you'll encounter a feedback loop at every step. At any point, you might learn something new that sends you back to a prior step to recognize to reconsider your early work. From there, you commence another left-to-right iterative path. So, okay, the double diamond design model. Let's talk about this. So, iteration should stop only when you're confident you have formulated a compelling customer value proposition, also known as a positioning statement that includes answers to all of these listed below. Uh, and also, for example, there is this like very interesting template. You can say for, insert target customer segments, dissatisfied with, you insert existing solution due to unmet needs. And then you have venture name, so your company name. Let's say 5x Grows offer a product category that provides, and then you list the key benefits of your kind of differentiated solution. All right, Double Diamond Design has two core principles. You should not start developing a specific solution until first you've identified the problem. That is, you've prioritized a set of strong unmet needs for distinct customer segments. And second, you've explored lots of alternatives and you're sure you've identified that one that, that best meets your customer's needs 
and also allows you to earn a healthy profit over the long term. Most entrepreneurs have a solution in mind at the outset. The, that's good, but Double Diamond Design asks you not to become too emotionally attached to that solution. Rather, you should stay open to possibility. More pressing unmet needs or better solutions might be out there. Entrepreneurs who fall victim to a false start are close to these possibilities. They jump directly to the end of the design process. My survey of early stage founders shows that many are vulnerable to false starts, as specifically compared to their counterparts in more successful ventures, founders slash CEOs of startups that are struggling or have shut down have shut down conducted significantly less upfront customer research were less likely to complete rigorous MVP tests and were less likely to say they had a very deep understanding of customer needs. Also compared to their more successful counterparts, these founders slash CEOs said they completed too few or too many pivots. These findings are consistent with the false start failure pattern. Founders who skip upfront research are more likely to need to pivot away from an initially flawed solution. Now let's talk about customer interview. Customer interviews form the backbone of the problem definition phase. Lean startup guru Steve Blank exhorts entrepreneurs to get out of the building and conduct customer discovery interviews before they start building. Discovery is the right mindset. Entrepreneurs should be looking for unmet customer needs. If an entrepreneur doesn't conduct enough customer interviews, Nagarash misstep speaks to the wrong individuals or manages the conversations poorly, he cannot be sure that he's identified a problem worth solving. Common errors with customers' interviews include assuming you understand customer needs because you are the customer. So now, yeah, let's talk about common errors with customer interviews. So the first one we already spoke, we... we we kind of raised this problem. To some extent, Nagarash fell into this trap. Extrapolating his own preferences when designing dating solutions. But people have very different needs when they date online. It's not necessarily a mistake to create a solution that addresses your own needs. Provided you've spoken to enough potential customers to be confident that a sizable number share share the same kind of need so yeah we've talked about assuming you understand customer needs because you are as a customer this is first big error in your customer interview process in your discovery process the second big error would be convenience sampling so entrepreneurs often interview friends, family, and co-workers because they're easy to reach and likely to cooperate. 
Unfortunately, because we tend to surround ourselves with people similar to us, this can be akin to interviewing yourself. I mean, it's very self-explanatory. If you're doing, if you like, have convenient sampling, that's a highway to hell, as they might say. So, third error that can occur is not interviewing all concerned parties. It's important to inter interview everyone who'll have a voice in the purchasing decision. In a business-to-business -business setting, for example, the end users of a software system are typically not the individuals who selected or authorized its purchase. Likewise, in a, fam in a family setting, parents may decide what their children are allowed to consume. In these cases, you need to seek feedback both from the end user and the decision maker. Fourth error is focusing only on an early adapters. The instinct to cater to the needs of one's early adapters is understandable. After all, these are the people you rely on to spread the word about your product. But early adopters for a new solution often have stronger and different needs than mainstream individuals who may purchase later. Fifth error that you might make is leading questions. Entrepreneurs must take control not to phrase questions in ways that encourage respondents to say what the interviewer hopes to hear. Instead, wouldn't you say it takes too much time to sort through stale match profiles? Ask a more open-ended question, like, what's been your experience searching through match profiles? The sixth error that you might make while conducting interviews is asking for predictions. If you ask someone what they'll do in the future, you often get wishful thinking especially if the behavior is desirable. For example, how often will you go to the gym next month might elicit the response every other day. Instead, asking about past behavior, for example. How often did you go to the gym last month? Which might yield, um, I've been busy and I haven't been there in three weeks. Despite any caveats they might add about Extend, extenuating circumstances, past behavior is likely a good indicator of how they will behave in the future. Seventh error that you might make conducting an interview is pitching your solution. Entrepreneurs tend to be so excited about their ideas that they can't resist pitching them to see how people react. But this is not a helpful exercise. Whether it's because they don't want to hurt your feelings or because your intensity scares them a little, or both, many interviewees will say they love your concept even if they don't. Early in the design process, founders shouldn't waste time pitching. There is a right time and a right way to get feedback on solutions later on. At this point, entrepreneurs should be probing only for unmet needs. So the eighth error that you might encounter is user testing of existing solutions. 
You can learn a lot about unmet needs by observing how target customers use a rival's existing product. Ask them to talk aloud as they complete typical tasks, saying that they saying what they like and dislike, what confuses them, and electra. Nagaraj, for example, could have asked consumers to search for a date on eHarmony or fill out their profile upon registering at match.com and then noted their reaction. Eighth error is focus groups and ethnography. These two techniques aren't suited for every venture. Focus groups are best for products that elicit strong emotional reactions. From the other from the others that might not emerge in one-on-one -on -one interviews. But it takes a skilled facilitator to get everyone talking, to avoid groupsync, to gently quiet individuals who otherwise would dominate the decision, discussion, and to diffuse harsh judgments of others' comments. And ethnography, going into the field to observe individuals directly as they try to solve a problem, is a favorite technique of professional designers. For example, an entrepreneur built an online grocery service might learn a lot by watching shoppers travel, traverse a brick and mortar grocery store. And then you also need to think about journey mapping. After using these research tools to gain an expanded understanding of the problem space, it's important to synthesize one's learning. Journey mapping offers a visual method. On the map's hor horizontal axis, you plot all the sec sequential steps in a customer's buying journey, gaining awareness of a problem, researching potential solutions, purchasing one, using the solution, seeking after-sales service, considering repurchase, Electra. Then, in each vertical column, you add text at each step that briefly describes issues that impact the customer's level of satisfaction or her emotional state in either, it in either positive or negative ways. N then you need to do a competitor analysis. Having identified a broad range of unmet customer needs for different customer segments, you now shift into convergence thinking mode. The goal decide which unmet needs to address and, and which customer segments to target. Through customer interviews and user testing of existing solutions, you should have developed hypotheses about unmet needs. Now, it's important to confirm that those needs are truly not being met, which requires a more comprehensive competitor analysis. Is it possible that a rival already offers a superior solution? You may think you've encountered every existing solution, but entrepreneurs are startled by rivals all the time. After working on a problem and its solution for weeks, they stumble upon a competitor that seems to have a silver bullet. It's better to be systematic about ass assessing the competitor competition early rather than risk being surprised later on. Competitor analysis usually takes the form of a grid with rows representing the features and performance attributes and columns showing existing solutions. 
as well as your own startups and vision products. A version of this chart makes it into almost every entrepreneur's pitch deck, which check marks in every cell for the startup's own product. And of course, fewer checks for rivals. And then we're moving on to customer service. Surveys can be a powerful tool when deciding which problems and customer segments to target. They should be used to validate hypotheses about the extent to which an existing solution meets a given need. Surveys can also be used to corroborate assumptions about differences in the needs and preferences of certain customer segments. Finally, surveys can help size the market opportunity by asking how often respondents engage in certain behaviors. Also, surveys feel scientific and can boost a pitch's credibility. And also, let's talk about market sizing. Estimating the the size of the total addressable market, TAM, is a crucial step before you're ready to move on to move out of the problem definition phase. Even if your startup offers a compelling solution to a real problem, it can still fail if the initial target, targeted market is too small and you don't have a clear path to broadening the set of customer segments you'll serve. Sizing the market involves estimating the number of prospects who could conceivably be interested in your offering. Both current customers of rival products who might prefer your superior solution and non-customers whose needs aren't being served by any of your existing competitors. Market size estimates typically are based on customer survey results and or published data. The trap here mirrors the one discussed above for other research tasks putting your thumb on the scale to impress investors and then believing your own exaggerated projections. This trap is an easy one to fall into, which explains why most pitch decks estimates of a new venture's TAM reach or exceed 1 billion. Now let's talk about personas. The best way to synthesize all of this convergence thinking is to develop personas. The personas are fictional examples of archetypal customers used to focus product design and craft marketing messages. Personas often have memorable names, say Peaky Paula for a hard-to-satisfy dater, along with imagined photo-specific demographic and behavior attributes. E.g., recent Duke graduate living in Austin who's been dating online for six months and visits OkCupid and Coffee Meets Bagel several times per week. And also distinctive functional and psychological needs, e.g. you can say not inclined to discuss online dating habits with friends and family, very concerned about safety when meeting matches in real life. Personas should seem like real people to make it easier for the team to view potential solutions from this person's perspective. It's generally best to create three to five personas, with one or two being primary, that is representative of your target customer segments. 
Having too many primary personas can result in a product that tries to be all things to all people. Other personas can represent key influencers in the purchasing process or customer segments that your startup will explicitly not target. And then you, you need, we need to talk about brainstorming, also known as a structured ideation. Brainstorming is the first task as a startup shifts from problem definition to solution development. The best brainstorming practices are ones that help a team spawn as many ideas as possible. For example, asking people to generate ideas before anyone speaks, discouraging naysayers from shooting down others' ideas, ensuring that everyone shares, giving people space to build upon one another's concepts, voting on which ideas should be developed further, and co correlating hippos the highest paid person's opinions. The brainstorming process should be as inclusive as possible, recognizing that great ideas truly can come from anywhere. And now let's talk about prototyping. With lots of ideas in hand, your team can turn to prototyping. A prototype is any representation of a design idea ranging from low to high fidelity. A higher fidelity prototype is closer to the envisioned final product in terms of its functionality, uh, its looks and feels, or both. A low fidelity prototype can be as simple as a series of sketches that depict the flow of screens along a software program's navigation path. Early in the solution development process, an entrepreneur is likely to create both work-like and look-like prototypes. Work-like prototypes explore technical feasibility and show how a solution will deliver required functionality. When creating a look-like prototype, it can be tricky to decide how much fidelity is ideal. On the one hand, polished, high-fidelity prototypes make it easier for potential customers to envision the intended solution, so their feedback may be more reliable. High fidelity prototypes also provide a clear roadmap for engineers who build the product. But on the other hand, high fidelity has a number of drawbacks. Creating a high fidelity prototype takes more effort. Without proper guidance, re reviewers may focus excessively on cosmetic design elements. For example, someone might say this button is too red. Some reviewers may be reluctant to criticize a prototype if they sense that a great deal of effort has gone into its creation, simply because they don't want to hurt the designer's feelings. Finally, some designers and engineers may become emotionally attached to a prototype in which they've invested great effort. Now let's talk about prototype testing. The methods for getting feedback on prototypes are similar to those discussed above for user testing of existing solutions. Potential customers can be asked to talk aloud while they use the prototype to complete specified tasks. A great trick is to show someone two prototypes at the same time, then ask which they like better. As just noticed, test subjects are often reluctant to criticize a design, but they'll be happy to say which of the two opinions they like better and why. 
throughout the focus should be on whether the solution delivers value not on the prototype's usability or attractiveness again that will will come later to explore perceptions of value questions might include what problems would this product solve when would someone really need this why today that might someone today what might someone use instead to solve the problem why might this new solution be better or worse what barriers might someone encounter when using this product what's missing what could be removed with the last questions you are not looking for design advice test subjects aren't good at that instead you are probing you are probing for unmet needs so if they're saying something missing your response should be okay what would you want uh okay why would you want that a question to avoid is would you use this as with interview and survey questions the answer from someone eager to please will too often be yes now let's talk about mvp testing prototyping prototyping and prototype testing should proceed in iterative loops until a dominant design emerges based on test feedback designers should reject some prototypes and refine others producing higher fidelity versions once they converge on a single favored solution it's time for minimal viable product testing an mvp is a prototype a back smile of the future product what distinguishes an mvp from other prototypes is how it is tested rather than sitting across a table getting verbal feedback from a reviewer you put a prototype that seems like a real product in the hands of real customers in real world context the goal is to quickly but rigorously test assumptions about the demand for your solution and gain what eric rice calls validated learning with as little wasted effort as possible a good mvp should embody the lowest fidelity possible to get reliable feedback because low fidelity implies less wasted effort put another way an mvp should provide no more looks like polish and works like functionality that is strictly necessary to conduct a test functionality comes in two flavors front end fu- functionality encompasses everything directly experienced by customers so for wings it was data's profile daily matches messaging search electra and also back end functionality is invisible to the customer but in to- inter- integral to serving them for wings this would include the live stream connectors the matching algorithm and service electra mvps come in four basic types depending on whether they they constrain front end functionality back end functionality or both constrained front end functionality constrained back end functionality constrained front and back end functionality and also a smoke test 
Well-designed smoke tests describe the planned product in enough details that a customer can commit in advance to purchasing it once it's available. Examples include landing pages, landing page tests, crowdfunding campaigns like Jibos, and letters of intent signed by business customers. The biggest mistake entrepreneurs make with MVP tests is not conducting them at all. But you can make other errors too. For example, failing to specify a threshold for test success. After all, proper hypotheses can be proven true or false only if tests have a measurable outcome. Our product will spread virally through positive referrals from happy customers is too vague because observing just one referral would be enough to pass this test. Better to specify that every 10 new customers will bring in 8 more. Another common error with MVP tests is revising one's assumptions and pivoting either too quickly or too slowly in response to test results. Before they pivot, entrepreneurs should ask whether the results they've observed might be false negatives or false positives. False negatives, for example, a test result that suggests that demand will be weak when it choose it would be strong. Might be a spurious reaction to a low fidelity MVP or a poorly executed test as opposed to a genuine rejection of the venture's value proposition. The false positives, for example, observing robust demand when true demand would be weak, are more likely when an entrepreneur recruits subjects who are category enthusiasts and not representative of the customers the venture will actually target. That's all for today's episode of the 5x Growth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review. For show notes and more, visit our website at 5xgrowth.com. Until next time, stay focused and keep growing.